0: All right, so this morning, we have Josiah Cain come to speak to us. Um, Josiah is a graduate of Northwestern High School, if I'm not mistaken. He's in his third year at the Bible College in Atlanta. Um, Recently engaged, as recent as... Two weeks. Two weeks ago, yeah. Yeah. So um, if you guys will welcome him, I'm sure he's going to bring us a great message. I don't know about a great message that's yet to be seen, but... Yeah, just to clarify, I'm not going to marry my sister, Um, (laughs) although she will also be an amber cane, but uh, that's for neither here nor there. Today, we're going to talk about uh, uh, drawing the line. That's kind of the title of the sermon, Um, but before we start, I just want to say thank you so much for having me, and it's such an honor to come here and to speak to you this morning, and you guys just have such a beautiful church. Uh, It sounds great, you guys sound great, the music's awesome, the kids are cute, and there's some familiar faces out here, so it's uh, pretty close to home, and there's a a sense of familiarity uh, that kind of just brings me a little bit of peace. Uh, But before I start saying much, I'm going to show you a cartoon, because I know that no matter how old you get, cartoons are still entertaining, especially the Looney Tunes. So if you could play that clip now, uh, that'd be great. A doggone long-eared galoot just a minute partner you can't talk to me like that them's fighting words yeah them's fighting words i dare you to step over this line okay i'm a stepping i dare you to step over this one this one But not this time. All right, so uh, there's your uh, entertainment for this morning. Um, And I promise it actually has something to do with my sermon. I'm not just showing you cartoons uh, for fun. Um, But I often find myself, like Yosemite Sam, uh, pointing, like Bugs Bunny grabs the guns and he points them back at Yosemite Sam and he's just standing there and then he's like, oh, I'm pointing the guns at myself, you know? Um, So I'm usually the one getting myself into trouble, uh, and unfortunately, it happens more often than I would like. But I would like for you to say amen if you are a Christian. Amen. Okay, so uh, most of us, if not all of us in this room, profess to be Christians, And I think as Christians, we can agree that working hard and being successful, working hard at your job, taking pride in what you do, isn't a bad thing. I think that we can agree that enjoying an hour of TV after you come home from a long day at work or enjoying a certain TV show isn't a bad thing. I think we can agree that loving your spouse isn't a bad thing. In fact, that's a good thing, and uh, I don't have... I'm not married yet, but I I am planning on getting married, and so I'm looking forward to that. But a significant other, someone in your relationship, loving that person is not a bad thing. And I think that we can agree that having a reputation, a good reputation, with the people around you and in your community are not bad things. But who would say that slaving over your job day in, day out, finding your fulfillment in what you do entirely is a bad thing where you just find all of your fulfillment in your job where you make that your idol who would say that investing your whole being into the pleasures this world has to offer you like entertainment tv shows music making that your life is a bad thing who would say that living only for the purpose of earning the love loving appreciation of your spouse that's the only reason you live is that that's the only reason you wake up in the morning is to please your spouse That could be a bad thing. And we can also say that living only for to find your identity and other people's affirmation is a bad thing. So how do we, as Christians, decide where we draw the line? The point at which something good, something good like loving your spouse, watching a TV show... Doing well at your job or having a good reputation—the point at which these good things become sins, become idols—is when they take precedence in our life. It's a it's a problem of misplaced love, where things that should be second, third, or fourth take first, and we find ourselves a lot like Bugs Bunny and Yosemite Sam. And at least in my own mind, I think I'm both at the exact same time, where I'm the one drawing the lines. And I'm saying, cross them. And then I'm saying, okay, I'll cross it. And then I draw the next line, and I cross it. And I'm, I'm saying that, oh, 35 hours a week is good enough at my job. And I'm like, well, I think I can do better. So we push the boundary a little bit further. And we draw another line of the sand, and we push the boundary a little bit further. And we keep stepping over these lines. And we keep stepping over the lines. And eventually, we get up to the cliff. But we're so focused on drawing the lines about how much, is, how much of a good thing is too much. We're so focused on drawing the lines, and maybe I should stop here, maybe I should stop over here, I don't know, but we're so focused on drawing the lines that we don't realize we're on the edge of the cliff. And then we step over that last line, and then we're in a free fall. We don't know what's going on, we're confused, we're shocked, um, we're falling, and we're falling into a sin, um, And this happens not just with the things I mentioned, but with a lot of things in our lives. And so you're falling, and you don't know what you can do to get out, but you could still get out if you wanted to. Like Bugs Bunny, he runs down there real quick before Yosemite, Sam hits the ground, he throws a mattress on the ground, and so at that point you could still get out of your own trouble. But I think too often we find ourselves saying what seems like a parable of someone much wiser than Bugs Bunny Sometimes my conscience bothers me, but not this time. And then we hit the ground. We're broken, we're shattered, and we don't know what to do. And we have to pick up the pieces from there. So I asked you again, where do we as Christians draw the line in our lives? Well, I'm here to tell you if that's how you're dealing with sin, if that's how you deal with the problems in your life, you're asking the wrong question. There is a really good quote I found off a Christian dating website. Um, so, this is pertaining to uh, marriages within uh, a heterosexual marriage within a Christian setting before marriage. And this is the quote from that website. It says, How far is too far? Asking how far is too far to go with your significant other. How far is too far is the wrong question. We should not focus on how close we can get to sinning without sinning any more than we should focus on how close we can get to hitting an oncoming car. When our hearts are right with God, we are concerned with what is truly pure, with how we can glorify God with our bodies. We want every act of affection to be a reflection of the fact that He is first in our lives. Until He is, we will have a terribly hard time discerning love from lust. Have a terribly hard time discerning love from lust. And we can only get a proper understanding of where we are when we put God first. So if you have your Bibles, I would ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And if you're not familiar with your Bibles, if you, if you take your Bible, you split it in half, then you take the second half and you split it in half again, you should be pretty close to Matthew. So it's the first book in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be starting in verse 17. Now let me just give you a ba- little bit of background information on this passage. It's what they call the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, or the Sermon on the Mount. And that is where Jesus is preaching his, his greatest sermon recorded in the Bible, where he's talking to a bunch of people on the side of a mountain, and he gives such great words of wisdom. And there's a point here that he makes near the end of Matthew chapter 5 that is just so incredible when you take a look at it. But we're going to start in verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill. That word fulfill, and that word, is the Greek word "plēosia." Now, um, that probably doesn't mean much to you, but like um, we were saying earlier in our Bible study, that Greek words, or Sunday school this morning, Greek words can be translated a bunch of ways. And that word really means, I came to complete the law. I came to bring it to its fullest extent. I didn't come to... To get rid of the law, I came to make it the greatest the law has ever been. So that's what Jesus is saying. Verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, Then unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, Jesus says this, but I say to you that everyone who is even angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you are not, you good for nothing. You shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And he says, whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering before the altar. Go be reconciled with your brother, and then come back to present your offering. Verse 25. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, that you may be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I, Jesus again, is is bringing the fulfillment of the law. But I say to you, Jesus, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In his heart is the issue here. It's not about, the question is not, where do we draw the line as Christians? Where do we draw the line in the sand where we say, this is too many hours at work a week, or this is too many hours of TV, I don't have time for anything else. Instead of saying, oh, I've spent this much money, gave my, uh, my fiance this many roses. Uh, okay, so I've, I've given her 49 roses, but if I only gave her 48, I wouldn't be crossing the line of loving her more than God. Or I only got four people to say that I did a good job job today instead of five, which means I didn't cross the line and I didn't put people's affirmation above God. That's the wrong question. Drawing the line is the wrong question. How much is too much is a long way to look at it. The real question is, where is my heart? So is your heart wrapped up in godly things? Or is it wrapped up in the things of this world? Is your heart wrapped up in righteousness, or is it wrapped up in lust? Now, I can't answer these questions for you. Uh, That's something you have to do yourself. But we're going to look a little further and unpack what Jesus said a little bit more. So if you turn a couple of chapters over uh, to Matthew chapter 15, I guess it's more than a couple, it's 10. But Matthew chapter 15, we're going to be starting in verse 17 again also. Again, also, I guess, is a little redundant. What do you think? <laughs> so, Matthew chapter 15, uh, verse 17. Now, if you look in verse 1 real quick, it says that Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. And if you're familiar with the Pharisees, they were a very, very, very strict uh, sect of the Jewish religion where they followed the law down to the smallest letter, they did not want to break anything that Moses had written down. Anything Leviticus, any of those things. They they kept the law to the best of their ability, even tithing down to the smallest grain of herbs that they had. They were good Jews, and they took the law seriously. So Peter, or excuse me, so Jesus uh, is, is talking to these people, and in verse seventeen we see this part of the conversation. It says, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and then is eliminated? He's talking to the Jews and Pharisees. He's saying, everything you eat is gone anyway. Verse 18, but the things that proceed out of your mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. Now this, to the Pharisee, would have been one of the craziest statements they'd heard in a long time because they weren't allowed to eat, for example, milk or a Uh, meat that was boiled in the milk of its mother or things that had blood in it. There's a lot of laws they had to follow that they couldn't eat. They couldn't eat pork. They couldn't eat any unclean animal. There's like uh, shellfish. They couldn't eat that stuff. There's a lot of stuff they couldn't eat. And Jesus is saying, it's not what you eat that makes you unclean. Because usually when they were unclean, they had to go to the temple, make a proper sacrifice, do the proper penance for their sin, and then they were clean for a time until they sinned again. And Jesus is saying, the things in Leviticus... Things in Moses are not what makes you unclean. The Pharisees would have been taken back by that statement. He says it's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. Verse nineteen. For out of the heart remember that's that's the question we're asking ourselves, where's our heart? For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and slanders. These are the things that which these are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands, it does not defile a man. Jesus is saying what you eat, how you eat with unclean, with unwashed hands, that's not making you a sinner. That's not keeping you apart from God. It's where your heart is. Pharisees, wake up. That's what the law is about. Wake up. You need to get things straight because every single murder in history, every single adultery, every single fornication, every single theft, every single lie, and every single slander started as an idea. It came out of the heart. It did not come out of action first. You just don't wake up one morning, walk down the street, and then pull out a gun and shoot someone next to you, right? Maybe in extreme circumstances, that happens. But most of the time, it's someone treats your family wrong, and then you start getting bitter towards that person. And eventually, This builds up to the point to where you have a hate, a burning anger for that person, and then you go and kill them, like Cain and Abel. Cain got so jealous of Abel because he thought his sacrifice was better, and it just festered inside of him until he took his only brother's life. So every single evil action that's ever taken place starts in your heart. So you need to check your heart and ask where your heart is. Now, there's nothing that I can say better than what the Bible says. And one of the the greatest books of wisdom in the New Testament is the book of James. They call it the the Proverbs of the New Testament. So if you'd like to turn with me to James, uh, we're going to take a look there for a minute and and try to get a little deeper understanding of how this process takes work in our lives and how we can deal with sin. Uh, Now, it's after Hebrews, so if you find Hebrews, you're almost there. And if you get to Peter, one of the Peters, you've gone too far. So uh, right in between Hebrews and Peters, you find the book of James. We're going to be starting in verse 1. And it is just so enlightening and so so cool, I think, to see how he draws this metaphor of how sin works. In chapter 1, verse 14 of James. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, carried away, that almost sounds nice. Do you agree? Like, it it almost sounds like it would be nice to be carried away. Like, it's like a little, you know, like a a small child being picked up by his father, you know, carried away. It kind of just makes it seem like you're floating on a cloud and being, you know, lifted away. I think that's how it originally happens in our minds. When we are carried away by our thoughts, we begin to dwell on them. And then that, that thought develops, and, and sooner or later your mind's somewhere it wasn't before, but you don't really know how you got there. It's, it's a subtle process that you're not sure how it works. So 14, you're carried away, enticed by your own lust. And then lust has conceived. So we see James talking about a, a birth metaphor here. How, how birth happens in real life, you get pregnant, right? And then there's nine months of gestation. There's, there's a long period of time before... You give birth. And that's how sin works. The seed is planted. The idea starts. Then that seed gestates. It it grows older, just like a baby in a mother's womb. And then, verse 15, it gives birth to sin. So this idea develops. Then it gives birth to sin. And then sin is accomplished. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, a good example of this, you might ask yourself, well, I have sinned before. I probably sinned this morning. <laughs> and I'm not dead, right? So what is this, what is this saying? Is the, is the Bible not true? It, it, it says that when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death, but I'm not dead. So what does it mean? Well, every single time you sin, a part of you dies. Um, now, this is... I promise things are going to get better here in a second. It's not all such a sad part, but we have to understand fully uh, what the problem is before we can get to the solution, right? So like Adam and Eve, they were in the garden. They were enjoying being with God. They were enjoying the the perfect paradise. And when they sinned, they hid. They had shame. They felt guilty. They, They realized they were naked. None of those things happened before they sinned right? So they didn't die that day. Satan says, surely, or the serpent, excuse me, the serpent says, surely you will not die if you eat this fruit. And he was right. They didn't die that day, but a part of them started to die. Their peace, their joy, their comfort, all those things died because instead of having peace, they were scared of God. Instead of having joy, they felt shame. They hid from God. So even though sin might not immediately kill you, it kills parts of you. So what is the solution to this corrupt heart? What is the solution to fix this problem? What do we do as Christians from here? Well, I'm going to tell you that you can't do it on your own. There is nothing that man can do to accomplish his own salvation by himself. It takes God on your side. So let's turn a couple chapters over in James, to James 4. And we're going to start in verse 7. He gives the solution to the problem here. Submit, therefore, to God. Verse 7 of chapter 4. Submit. That's the first word he says. We have to give ourselves over to God. The theme in the Gospels, the theme in Acts, and the entire New Testament is repent, believe, believe baptism. That is how people are saved. repent, believe, baptism. Repent, believe, baptism. It's this theme that's repeated, and James is saying it here in a slightly different way. Submit, give yourself to God, then resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So submit yourself to God. That's the first step. Then flee from your your sins. Flee from the temptations of the devil the best you can, because the farther you move away from that, the farther it's going to move away from you. Verse 8, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. So as you're moving away from this thing over here, God is moving closer to you at the same time you're moving closer to Him. Right? Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. I think that's really just saying repent. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts. And don't be double-minded. Really, what you believe should reflect how you act. And so he's saying, don't be a hypocrite after you purify yourself. Do your best to follow what you believe in. So submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So that's the solution. Once we submit ourselves to God, he fills us with his spirit. He begins the cleansing act inside of us. He begins working with us day in, day out, making us closer to the image of his son, Jesus. And eventually we get to this place where we're restored creatures. God is a God of restoration. That word literally just means making something broken, old, into something new again. That's what the word restore means. The Garden of Eden, it was this paradise. The sin happened, the fall happened, then we have a corrupt world. In Revelation, we get the, and throughout the Bible, we get the, the kingdom that is coming will be a restored earth. That is what we're looking forward to. Our hope is, is a restoration of the things that are broken. God put man on this earth to have dominion over it, to love it, to to subdue it. He wanted them to work the ground, to love the animals, to take care of his creation. And he wants that to happen again. He wants to walk with man, but we can't yet, or we're going to, when God restores everything. So God is a God of restoration, and he doesn't want to see you just survive in this world. He wants to see you thrive in this world. He wants to see you restored. He wants to see you to be able to overcome the sin in your lives. He wants you to be able to, to, to walk in confidence of your salvation. He desires all these things for you. And instead of having another checklist that we're trying to follow here, because we're not like the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes. We're not trying to say, I can't be angry at someone. I have to be, I, have to close, I have to walk around with my eyes closed. That way I don't look at anybody and lust after them. That way I don't even start to commit adultery. No, that's not what we're doing. We don't have this checklist that we're trying to follow. Instead, focus on where your heart is. If you turn yourself to God and and you focus on God, the other things won't even be there. You don't have to worry about following a list of do's and do nots because that is no better than what the Jews came out of. What you have to focus on is God. So the solution to the corrupt heart is submission to God, and letting Him work through you. We are given the best chance there has ever been in all of human history to be redeemed. I know for one that I want salvation. I know, I don't know about for you, but I can assume that you guys want to thrive. You don't want to walk around this life beaten down, disenfranchised. That's not what you want. You want to thrive. You want to wake up in the morning with the joy of God in your hearts. And we are given the best chance ever in history at being a redeemed, restored people again. Islam, Buddhism, Shintoism, every other religion in the world has been wanting to be enlightened, right? They've been tested, they've been tried. People have gotten only so far on their own power, but no one has been able to figure out the secret to being a perfect person. And I'm here to tell you that someone has, but it wasn't a person, it was God. He told us what to do. He said, believe in your son. So all of these other religions, all these other ways of living are found wanting when it comes to what they're trying to fulfill. But Christianity delivers on that promise. And it's not going to fully deliver now, but in the age to come, can I get an amen that we're looking forward to this glorious age? Amen. Thank you. That is just, we have such a good perspective on life because we know that it's not what we have to do, it's what God can do in us that's going to save us. So in our day-to-day lives, when we find ourselves approaching sin, we need to stop asking the question, where is the line? Because the line moves. Because we can draw new lines in our minds. We need to stop focusing on that question. And instead, we need to turn inward. We need to turn into ourselves and ask where our hearts are. And we need to turn upward. We need to look to God and put Him first in our lives. Because this misplaced love that we live with, where your spouse, your job, entertainment, uh, the affirmation of others, when they start taking the first place in your life and God moves down the rungs, then things are out of out of out of perspective, things are out of priority, they don't work out right, and they find us wanting. But if we put God first, everything else falls into line the way it's supposed to be. So if we're focused on God in our job, if we're focused on giving uh, the excess away to help the poor, if we are blessing people through our jobs, if we're focusing on God's blessings first instead of focusing on making money and being successful, your job will be better. And instead of focusing on finding your joy and fulfillment in entertainment and entertainment, and the joke is, you know, have anybody ever seen Everybody Loves Raymond, right? It's, it's this show. My dad, and my parents love it. They, they watch it all the time. But instead of Everybody Loves Raymond after you come home after work, try Everybody Loves Romans, right? Just go home and read some Romans, right? And, and see what that can do for you. Find your fulfillment and your relaxation in the Bible and in prayer and with God. Instead of endlessly pouring out your life for your spouse or your significant other, for relationships even in general, instead of doing that, focus on pleasing God first. Focus on making Him the center of your life and the center of your affections, and that every relationship you have in your life will fall into place after that. And it will be better than if you put your whole self into it without God. Maybe it's just as simple as finding your approval and who God says you are. Redeemed child of Christ, instead of looking for the people around you to give you an attaboy, instead of finding your identity and how people view you, right? So we have a reason to celebrate here. We have a reason to be filled with joy, because God gives us a way out of our sin, and God wants us to thrive. So I ask you one last time, where is your heart? If you would like to bow your heads and uh, we'll pray ourselves out. Uh, dear Lord, I thank you for the opportunity once again to come up here and to speak to these great people. Um, and we really do, uh, we, we call upon you to fill our hearts, to show us that we're redeemed and to claim the life that you've given us, God. And we thank you so much for all the joy and the blessings you pour out in our lives. And may us all every single thought of our day every single thought, every single moment, every single action be focused on you and who you are, and let us aim to please you and no one else. We we pray that we have a good week, that you bless our week, and that we can be filled and have an courage and boldness to share your message with other people. That way, they too can be saved from this world, from the drudgery of life, and be shown uh, how much they are missing out on, and that they can one day be in the kingdom.